Hello, everyone, and welcome to your weekly American Prestige. I'm Danny Bessner, and I'm here as always with my friend Derek Davison. Derek, how's it going? Uh, not too bad. How are you? Good, good. It's been sort of really hot in LA, and the school quarter is starting again, and people don't quite know what's going to happen with the Delta variant, and hospital beds seem to be filling up, but it's very unclear. Yeah, it just seems like a like a whole situation. So, I mean, you do the COVID stuff um, for uh, foreign exchanges. What's what's your take on where we are now? Actually, um, I mean, it, yeah, it's I I kind of stopped doing like daily updates because the numbers were always wrong and uh, they change. I mean, they changed like they were out of date by the time anybody read the newsletter anyway. But so I, I just kind of linked to uh, I think it's Worldometers as a uh, a decent set of data but um i mean uh, there's a lot of places that are spiking again and and it's delta primarily uh we're, you're starting to see like political effects you know the prime minister of japan just announced that he's not going to stay in office because he's so unpopular mostly because uh you know they're dealing with a renewed spike in the the pandemic uh justin trudeau may be in some trouble in canada now uh, partly because uh, of the pandemic uh, the big thing i mean the big thing that i tr i've been tracking is the ongoing fight to to get wealthy nations to stop hoarding vaccine supplies which has gone nowhere uh, despite some generous promises from uh, not generous enough, but generous by our standards, I guess, from the Biden administration and other Western European governments, the, the World Health Organization's director uh, just you know, made another plea earlier this week for countries not to do booster shots uh, until at least the end of this year to ensure that there are, are supplies that can be distributed to the developing world. And that's probably going to fall on deaf ears. Um, according to him, only like 15% of the pledges that the developed world has made in terms of uh, vaccine donations have actually been fulfilled to date. Uh, so it's really, I mean, it's shockingly inhumane and it's not something that I think gets enough uh, news coverage. And obviously people are worried about at-risk populations in, in the US and Europe and places that are and already well vaccinated. Yeah. Uh, but at the same time, the idea of like anybody in the U.S. getting a third shot while like frontline healthcare workers in uh, you know most African countries are waiting for shot number one uh, is is really startling and and um, you know I think uh, he's right to kind of call out uh, wealthy nations for this. And it's interesting to think just in the longer term history of biological warfare against dispossessed populations going back to the beginning of the colonial period. Um, you know, famously, we hear about the smallpox blankets that were given by uh, in, uh, American, you know, elites to indigenous populations. But this has basically been a defining characteristic of uh, the, since the moment when the global north became the global north and the global south became the global south. And that's with colonialism. So we should do a we should do an episode of the long delay history of biological warfare, of which That's this is, 
Yeah, of which this is a certain instantiation, not quite giving uh, smallpox blankets uh, to indigenous peoples, but you know, I think it's it could be usefully considered to be part of the same continu- uh, continuum about how biological uh, warfare is used uh, either through active measures like the blankets or through passive measures by not distributing vaccines around the world. Uh, I think it's a good. I think North. it it sort of highlights that the range of uh, view like the the range of approaches that the global north takes toward the global south runs from uh, outright hostility to indifference like that that's the band like there's no uh you know actual point at which uh we're concerned about what's going on in the global south it's either we don't care or we're actively trying to to you know fuck with this place yeah, and that's a, a really interesting history, and my, probably is one of the defining features of the macro historical modern era. If you think it begins in the 15th century with colonization, this is a um, ideological element that runs through the entire thing. So yeah, that episode on biological warfare would be good. Uh, and speaking of indifference, um, why don't we turn to what's going on in Guinea uh, and the coup uh, that just happened there? So Derek, give, give uh, the prestige heads the lay of the land. Uh, yeah, so um, on Sunday, uh, the special forces unit within the Guinean military led by uh, a colonel named, I'm going to butcher his name, Mamadi Dumbuya, uh, overthrew President Alpha Conde and his government. Uh, they've imposed a junta that they're calling the National Rally and Development Committee. Um, and, uh, you know, it's it's only been a few days, so obviously the uh, reaction of the international community in particular is taking some time to unfold. Um, the economic community of West African states uh, yesterday, I believe, uh, suspended, or maybe it was Tuesday, I can't remember, uh, but earlier this week, let's say, suspended Guinea's membership, uh, which they they do, they tend to do as sort of the first response to any kind of a military coup or, or overthrow of a, an elected government in uh, among their member states. Um, they're sending, um, and may they may be there now, they were sending a delegation uh, to Guinea today to sort of assess the situation. And there may be some more economic penalties forthcoming, or on the other hand, they may just stop there and give give the new junta time to sort of uh, present a transition plan. Uh, Dumbuya has suggested that he's uh, you know anxious to get a civilian transitional government in place within the next few weeks, which uh, could buy him some time with the international community. But uh, it's again we're we're in sort of the the first days after this. There's not a lot of specific uh, details um, to to I mean. The reaction in Guinea so far appears to be fairly supportive. Um, I mean, and that's based on Western media. That's based on the the videos and and images that have come out of uh, Guinea. So there may be, who for all I know, there may be a a large silent majority that support Conde and just are you know keeping their powder dry or whatever. Um, right. But but and all so- the video has been of people sort of. Uh, you know, ride, doing impromptu parades in the streets of Conakry and, and kind of celebrating uh, Conde's ouster. 
So uh, this is also part of a larger recent trend, I think, since the summer of 2020 in uh, West Africa. Uh, Mali, there has been two takeovers. And in Niger, there had also been uh, an attempted takeover. So what is what is going on in this region? What do you think is a larger structural cause for these transitions uh, in government? Is it climate? Is it just local political conditions? What's going on? Um, I, I don't know. I think it's um, – I'm, I'm wary of trying to put like a – a broader like west african problem label on on this stuff the 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 causes are um somewhat unique to each situation i mean in mali uh ibrahim Boubacar kaita was just i mean he was very ineffective president mali's mired in poverty he's been unable to to do to make any headway against uh the very serious a problem of jihadist violence in that country. And I think it just got to the point where uh, the military decided to step in. Um, Conde's case is different. Conde uh, was the first, uh, generally speaking, the f- or generally considered to be the first democratically, truly democratically elected president in Guinean history. He won the 2010 uh, election. Uh, he won re-election in 2015, and then he decided last year to run for a third term, even though constitutionally speaking, uh, he was not allowed to do that. Uh, he sort of rammed through some changes to the Guinean constitution that were supposed to reset his kind of term limit counter uh, to allow him to run again. Uh, but the decision generated a lot of opposition. There were several uh, protests. Dozens of people were killed in, in confrontations with uh, Ghanaian security forces. Uh, and he won the election amid a lot of claims of fraud. So there's a there's a unique situation here in, in that he's sort of overstayed his welcome. Uh, there are allegations of corruption and, again, sort of electoral fraud. Um, Guinea is... Also, I mean, Guinea is dealing with some of the same issues as Mali, not so much uh, in terms of jihadist violence, but it is a a fairly impoverished country. The people are struggling. Um, And all of these things were were things that Dumbuya and the the new junta kind of cited uh, in announcing the overthrow. They talked about Conde's disrespect for democratic principles. They talked about uh, corruption and high poverty. Um, So, you know, it's um, – I – I don't know that there's uh, much of a thread you can draw other than that this is, in general, uh, a region that is struggling with high poverty, that's struggling with climate change, kind of pushing people, um, you know, ruining land and, uh, you know, leaving people kind of uh, looking for for arable land and kind of cramming uh, more people into smaller and smaller spaces where uh, it's possible to to live a life and, and sort of make a living, and that uh, generates a lot of a lot of pressures. So one question that I have is that when we look at military coups um, in the global south through the last 40, 50, 60 years, the military generally presents itself as a uh, an engine of stability and an engine of modernization, um, in particular in an engine of development. Um, and this is actually something that many Western thinkers have also argued over the last 50, 60, 70 years. One of the reasons that the United States oftentimes supports military coups is that the military is considered to be the stable actor uh, in these societies. So is there something happening here 
here with the military coup in Guinea. Uh, I'm sure they're saying that they're the, the marker of stability, but is there any larger claim to development, to attracting investment capital, um, or right now, are we just in such an early stage that it's like, we will respect the constitution and we will be stable for the people of Guinea? I mean, I think they're they're more in that. I haven't seen, uh, uh, they're more in the latter stage right now. I haven't seen any specific um you know announcements from within the junta about changes that they're prepared to make uh, economically or or that sort of thing uh, guinea guinea is a major it's either got the world's largest bauxite reserves or, or close to which makes it a, a a really key supplier for aluminum manufacturing um so one of the things that i've seen speculated and again i haven't seen any you know actual uh, steps toward this but one of the things i've seen speculated is the junta uh, and and or the transitional government that that is likely to follow may look to um, break or or rewrite some of the contracts that Guinea has with uh, China right. in particular, uh, but also with U.S. manufacturers and and other firms uh, to kind of get a better deal uh, for Guinea out of those uh, relationships. And interestingly, um, that possibility, in addition to causing uh, global aluminum prices to spike over the last few days, uh, has drawn. Uh, the Chinese government out in, in an interesting way. China, uh, Chinese foreign policy tends to be sort of a no problems with anybody uh, foreign policy. And they, they try to cultivate relationships with multiple uh, parties in, in uh, each country so that they're prepared for things like this. Uh, but they had a very good relationship with Condé. And in contrast to the way they typically handle um, you know, so sudden changes of power, uh, they've come out pretty – decisively against this coup and have called for Conde's release and uh very interesting uh, so so that's that's an interesting development i don't i don't know how how great, strong a conclusion uh, you can draw from that but they in in contrast to say Myanmar where they were kind of uh in touch with everybody and were prepared to accept a military government when that coup happened uh, i don't think i don't get the sense that they were ready for this or that they feel like they they have the kind of relationship with the Guinean military that that uh, you know they need to have, I guess, and that's really interesting because um, that indicates, perhaps, or it might not indicate much, but it may be that with increasing U.S.-China uh, geopolitical antagonism, if not necessarily economic antagonism, China might actually start changing its behavior in the global South, at least in particular instances where it feels like it could lose much. And it'll be also interesting to see from the Ghanaian perspective how the country tries to work. Uh, the two great powers that are trying to affect it off of each other, which was a major story of the Cold uh, the Cold War. Um, for example, I would point people to David Angerman's book on India, which I believe is called The Price of Development, and it shows how India um, basically played the uh, Soviet Union uh, and the United States off each other. It's called The Price of Aid. Um, so it'll be interesting to see how these smaller nations try to, or at least more economically, uh, weak or impoverished nations try to play off of uh, the great powers. Um, so why don't we turn to Afghanistan? Uh, so Derek, what, what's what been going on there in the weeks since the U.S., the week, nine days, 10 days since the U.S. withdrawal? Um, I mean, there have been, there are a couple of developments this week that I think are worth talking about. The, the one that we can um, get out of the way fairly quickly is it seems like the 
national resistance front that had been forming in or was formed in uh, the Panjshir Valley has been defeated. Uh, the Taliban have announced that they control Panjshir province. Now, obviously, there's not much media there. It's hard to confirm any of these things. But even uh, the resistance, some of the resistance leaders have talked about their fighters kind of uh, dissolving into the countryside, maybe engaging in some guerrilla uh, activity moving forward. But it does seem like um, you know, if if anybody was was hopeful of a uh, you know northern alliance type thing reemerging uh, from this group, that that seems to be kind of uh, out of the question at this point. So, in some sense, the twenty years of the United States got rid of any opposition to the Taliban. Uh, does that mean that there's not going to be the type of civil war that people are feeling, uh, fearing, uh, or is it does it not indicate that it's still too early to tell? I, I mean, I think it's too early to tell. It doesn't seem like that's going to happen immediately. If that that was the, I mean, and that was one of the concerns when the U.S. pulled out that it wouldn't be instead of a rapid Taliban takeover, you would see an extended, uh, very bloody civil war. That that doesn't seem like it's going to happen. At least not. Uh, now we'll see moving forward, uh, and uh, some of that will depend on uh, how the Taliban governs the country, which is the other thing we can talk about, the uh, unveiling of a new uh, supposedly interim government this week, which um, uh, d- does not appear to, uh, shall we say, uphold any of the talk of moderation and inclusivity that the Taliban have, uh, have been engaging in for the last uh, couple of weeks. So uh, who's in the government and what do their appointments suggest? Um, So they they unveiled – again, they're calling it an interim or a caretaker government, so it may not be permanent. Um, But it's comprised entirely of uh, sort of senior Taliban leadership. Uh, There's – uh, the prime minister, and something of a surprise, is not Abdul Ghani Baradar, who was uh, sort of speculated to be the the pick for prime minister. It is instead uh, Mullah Hassan Ahmed, who uh, served as foreign minister under the Taliban government in the 1990s. Uh, so he's another senior kind of veteran Taliban leader. Um, it's hard to know why he got the pick and not Baradar. My, my guess is he was uh, more broadly acceptable to the various kind of uh, factions within the Taliban and sort of, uh, you know, as a compromise, uh, as a compromise pick was was more uh, um, just a stronger, stronger candidate. Um, but they've put Baradar in as, as deputy prime minister, Sirajuddin Haqqani, the, the uh, sort of infamous leader of the Haqqani network who is under U.S. sanction, uh, is interior minister. Um, the son of the former Taliban leader, Mullah Omar, is, is going to serve as defense minister, Mullah Yaqub. Uh, the overall leader of the Taliban, Mullah uh, Haibatullah Khanzada, uh, is, as we talked about, I think, last week, he's going to remain kind of above politics in a supreme leader sort of Like a, the Ayatollah a, a type role, situation. Kind of like that. Um, so that that part, at least, I think is is set in stone. What's unclear is whether this is what the government is going to look like, or again, they've talked about this as a caretaker thing. Uh, so maybe there's something else down the road, but there's no representation for women. There's no representation for anyone outside the Taliban, let alone anyone outside um, sort of the Pashtun 
community. There's no um, Hazara representation, for example, or Tajik representation. Uh, so this is this is um, if you were hoping for a, a, a Taliban 2.0, yeah. like not your father's Taliban, yeah. this is not a good sign. Yeah. Uh, it's not it a kinder, been, gentler Taliban, right? Not a kinder, gentle. It's not compassionate uh, Islamic conservatism. Just a quick question, actually, before we go on: Are they yeah. are they proclaiming an Islamic republic? Are they using that language, or what is the language they're using of the nation itself? Do we not know I, yet? I I haven't seen what they've used. I mean, in the nineties, they called it an Islamic emirate. That may be what right. they land on again, but I haven't seen um, anything to indicate exactly what they're uh, they're planning to call it. So how have powers in the region reacted to the uh, announcement of this new government? What has Iran said? What has Pakistan said? Has China said anything? Or are people keeping it mum for the moment um, to see what I happens? I mean, most of the reaction has been pretty unenthusiastic. Uh, I haven't seen anything from Pakistan. Uh, the Iranian government has suggested that it's a little disappointed uh, in these picks that they were expecting something a little uh, more broad based. Uh, so that's interesting because Iran and, and the Taliban um, have had a back and forth relationship. They were quite hostile to one another in the 90s. Uh, Iran has since kind of uh, supported the Taliban during the U.S. occupation. Uh, to be a, to be anti-American, basically. To be anti-American and anti yeah. right and anti-Islamic state as well. Uh, to be fair, right. Um, but you know the, the, they're not off to a great start here if they wanted to to maintain uh, a positive relationship with the Iranian government. That's that's the main reaction I've seen from from the region. You, you know, so the nothing United on China. Uh, China I haven't has seen anything, anything on China except that they continue to say uh, they're interested in having relation diplomatic relations with the new Afghan government and they intend to uh, maintain that. I haven't seen a specific response to the the unveiling of this government. That'll be really interesting, especially in light of what they're doing in Guinea. Uh, the, the next year of, of Chinese foreign policy is going to be uh, really important in understanding how or if the CCP is trying to make any shifts in the region. Um, so why don't we uh, return uh, to the old world, uh, the center of the EU, uh, that great power in the middle of Europe, or I guess at this point, middle power, Germany. So, Derek, what's been going on in Germany and what's been going on with the German elections? Uh, yeah, so Germany is uh, holding a federal election later this month. Uh, and what's really been shocking about sort of watching this is on September 26th. Uh, what's been shocking sort of watching the campaign and the polling uh, in particular has been the collapse of – uh, the Christian Democratic Union, Christ, Christian Social Union Alliance, the, the uh, union that's headed by Angela Merkel, although she's retiring and she's not leading it into the election. Uh, well, so let's polling... just pause on that for a second just to give a sense. So sure, Angela Merkel sure. has governed in Germany since, I believe, 2005. Is that what uh, it yes. is? So she's a she's a very long-ruling um, leader. Uh, she's often, when, when Trump was elected, many people, particularly in the United States, uh, were looking to her as the leader of the free world. She's almost, and interestingly enough, you know, she she came from the um, the the east, um, the uh, East Germany. She was she was uh, born there, and then I think she moved to 
West Germany, is that correct, Eric? No, she was born point. in West Germany, but she grew up in, in right, East sorry. Germany. She, she was born in, so Angela Merkel is born in West Germany, my mistake, and grew up in East Germany. And, and she's an almost an Adenauer-esque figure is that she she's like kind of a, a serious figure, but someone who, you know, kept the nation together during difficult times, comes to power in 2005. Um, you know, the, uh, Germany's relationship with the United States, Germany's relationship with, with uh, Britain are, are going on uh, undergoing transformations the eu is changing and so her retirement um from the position of chancellor uh is is an apocal shift people will be referring to the merkel era in german history historians in the future so there's a lot of open questions about what um who is going to govern uh, govern uh, going forward and she was the leader of the christian democratic union between 2000 and 2018 and the christian democratic union the cdu was in um a, an alliance with the CSU. And that alliance, as Derek said, is coming apart. So what are the reasons that that alliance seems to be coming apart? Um, well, their their alliance is it, – it's, it's kind of interesting, actually, because, I mean, the CSU is sort of uh, the Bavarian equivalent, uh, and it, it doesn't run – uh, nationally, except in union with the the Christian Democratic Union, um, the two parties chose the the president of uh, North Rhine-Westphalia, Armin Laschet, uh, as their chancellor candidate or the the guy to lead the ticket uh, into this election. And he seems to be, and I don't fully understand why. I'm not versed enough in German politics to know. Uh, but he's he seems to be deeply unpopular with the German people. Like they do not want this guy uh to be Chancellor. Um there's more support if you you know and polling has shown people are actually more enthusiastic about the head of the the Christian Social Union uh, if he were to head the ticket uh but the CDU is the the larger party and so it's kind of bigfooted uh its guy at the top of the ticket um it'll be interesting to see if they really do get uh as as badly beaten as as polling is starting to suggest uh what that does to the the alliance between the two parties because there's a a strong case for the csu to be like you know you you guys really screwed us here and and uh that that could be an interesting uh development so what is, what does polling look like now who does it look like is going to actually win this thing so the last poll that i saw had uh the cdu csu at 19%, which is an all-time low um, for them and is is almost unheard of. The the Social Democratic Party, which has been uh, in coalition with Merkel, the junior party in the, the coalition since 2013, uh, is actually leading now. Um, and interestingly, Olaf Scholz, the vice chancellor and the head of the uh, SPD, has been able to portray himself as sort of the candidate of continuity. Like if you if you like Merkel, then then vote for me because I've been in, in you know her vice chancellor all this time. Uh, and he seems to be benefiting from that. So the the SPD is at uh, 25%. Uh, what's interesting here is not just the, the sort of reversal in their fortunes, but the fact that um, their coalition seems like it will no longer be viable after the election. So uh, this two-party coalition that's run Germany since 2013 um, is probably not going to get a collective majority coming out of this, this vote, which means uh, probably some extended negotiations on a new coalition, and it's it's difficult to know what that might look like. Um, if the the SPD hangs on and, and does emerge victorious, it could approach 
the Greens. Um, that would get them part of the way toward uh, a majority or most of the way, uh, but not quite all the way, in which case they'll have to bring in a third party. And there's no obvious uh, candidate for that. So uh, there's the left party, which is made up of kind of former East German communist uh, elements, uh, and they're typically marginalized. So it would be um, a, a big step for uh, for them to come into a governing coalition. Uh, there's also the Free Democratic Party, which is a little more libertarian, pro-business, uh, kind of center-right. Uh, they have some state coalitions with the SPD and the Greens, but they've been uh, they've expressed reluctance to enter a coalition with the Green Party uh, at the national level. So there's a lot of a um, lot of uh, stuff that's un clear here in terms of uh, what kind of coalition could emerge, assuming that the the, the polling uh, holds or you know proves to be accurate in the in the election. So why don't we end on this? Let's say the SPD is able to put together a coalition and is able to be the you know the big brother in the coalition. What does this mean for German politics? Uh, and let's just that's a, a huge question. So why don't we say what does this mean for German politics within the European Union in particular as sort of this third force in international affairs? Um, I, I don't know that it means much immediately. I mean, the SPD and the the CDU under Merkel, uh, their approach towards European politics is it pretty close. I mean, the, the SPD is sort of a little left of center. Merkel is a little right of center. You might see Germany being a little more amenable to things like, um, you know, uh, fiscal aid or sort of, you know, sharing kind of uh, responsibility for uh, fiscal operations and, and then, then Merkel's government has been. So, uh, you know, some additional aid to uh, struggling EU economies coming out of the pandemic could be, could be possible under uh, a Schultz-led government. Um, what I think in a longer term sense could be interesting is if uh, the CDU CSU alliance, assuming that that there's no rift that opens up there, uh, if if they start to gravitate right to try and uh, right. eat away at like the far right alternative for Germany parties base of support, um, they could take on a more anti Europe uh, tone if 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 that's the direction party leaders decide to go to to uh, kind of uh, improve their standing. Cool. So there's a lot up in the air, and we'll be giving you updates on American Prestige. Uh, so everyone, please enjoy our interview uh, with Alex Avina on the history of uh, Mexico. Thanks, Derek. See you next week. Hello, American Prestige listeners. Danny and I are yes. back, and we're very lucky to be joined by Alexander Avina. Uh, Alex is a, the, an associate professor of history in the School of Historical, Philosophical, and Religious Studies at Arizona State University. He's previously taught at Florida State University and the University of Southern California. His research deals in 20th century Mexico with an emphasis on revolutionary movements, the Mexican left, state violence and terrorism, immigration, and the history of narcotics production and trafficking. He's got a book uh, published in 2014, is that right, Alex? It's called Specters of Revolution, Peasant Guerrillas in the Cold War Mexican Countryside. Uh, and he's uh, recently written a, a piece for a very exciting newsletter called Foreign Exchanges, 
uh, <laughs> you might yeah. want to check out maybe at Substack. <laughs> Called the American Maginot Line. It's uh, the first of a two-part uh, essay on the U.S.-Mexican border uh, and the history of its role as kind of a, an issue of national security. Uh, Alex, thank you very much for coming on the program. So one of the things I was very excited to have you on this podcast because we've talked in a, a, a sort of uh, amateur way <laughs> since we are not uh, really experts in uh, border issues. We've talked about the role of the frontier, the North American frontier, and then ultimately the U.S.-Mexico border as a proving ground for American empire. So in this, in the long period between the founding of the United States and the, um, the point at which most people would agree the, the U S acquired its overseas empire with the Spanish American war and then moving into the 20th century in that period prior to, to that, the United States was in our view, uh, sort of, working out the mechanisms of empire within the North American context. And that's one of the things uh, that I'm very excited to talk with you about. However, this being uh, the week that it is, September 11th anniversary coming up, uh, and given the fact that your column, your your FX column, starts uh, with the war on terror, um, why don't we start there and sort of talk about one of the things that I think has gotten lost in the 20 years uh, since 9-11, the, the degree to which in the immediate aftermath of those attacks, uh, there was a lot of attention focused on the security, security supposed threat posed by the southern border. Can you talk a little bit about that and about put that in, in the context of sort of the repeated move to to you know uh raise panic about the border and other times in, in u.s history when you know national security was perceived to be at risk yeah sure um just like full disclosure i'm not a border expert either but we can get back to later as to why um i'm so interested in it besides working here at, obviously in arizona um i think it's in terms of 9 11 um you know, right before, it was part of George W. Bush's campaign platform, and then right after he, he entered office, there was a lot of discussion about doing um, one of these deals on immigration. And uh, they used, the euphemism they used was something like, we're going to do the whole enchilada, like we're going to completely renegotiate and do this comprehensive immigration reform program. Um, he was working it out with his buddy, the Mexican president, Vicente Fox, who was uh, an idiot, just like George W. Bush. They got along well. Both had a difficult grasp of language. And 9-11 uh, happened, and it interrupted that, right? So the, the, the argument goes that 9-11 happened and the U.S. pivoted toward, toward the West Asia or the Middle East. Um, but as I write in the column, you know, really quickly after 9-11, you had uh, certain you know, Ivy League intelligentsia really like glom on to some of these arguments that people like Pat Buchanan had been talking about for years, right? This idea that that Mexican migrants were a threat to U.S. national security because uh, they were going to somehow reconquer territories that had once belonged to Mexico. It wasn't going to be a military conquest. It was going to be like a spiritual and cultural conquest. So you have in the, in the column, I, I talk about uh, the really famous article in Foreign Policy by Samuel Huntington, who had moved his class of civilization thesis 
uh, toward the U.S.-Mexico border. And he writes this article called The Hispanic Challenge, which he, he makes that Pat Buchanan-esque type argument that says, look, Mexican migrants don't assimilate into U.S. society. They're therefore a threat to Anglo-American political institutions and civic life. I mean, he uses that type of language. And, um, you know, one of, the, one, one of the points of evidence that he uses to, to, to highlight this point is he talks about how when the, the Mexican national soccer team comes to play in the U.S., um, that audience, that the stadium is like 90%, 95% Mexican fans who boo the U.S. national team when they come to play. Um, and that somehow is evidence that, that, the, that these Mexican migrants are, are taking over the United States. So throughout, like, in the, in the first 10 years afterwards, you have a war on, on, on migrants that is then waged, right, in bipartisan fashion. And, and someone like Daniel Denver has a book on this that traces out the long history of this bipartisan war on migrants. The, the, one of the things that's interesting after 9-11 is that they essentially use a war on terror logic and they apply it to this war on migration, right? And you start to get a series of hyperbolic uh, news stories about how Mexican drug cartels are working with Hezbollah, working with Al-Qaeda and MS-13, and, and they're all working to like destabilize and, 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 and bring about the fall of the U.S. through the encouragement of, of undocumented migration. So that is um, really interesting and plays into the longer history of the United States using and abusing Latin America for its own ideological and discursive purposes in order to push forward a particular ideological project. And, you know, since we're both historians, I was wondering if you could maybe talk a little bit about what Derek was gesturing at and what I think first William Appleman Williams referred to as Empire's Workshop, something along those lines. And then Greg Grandin, you know, famously wrote a book, Empire's Workshop. So um, as a specialist on Mexico, how would you define the United States' relationship with Mexico and sort of the long durée history, let's say starting with the 1810, you know, initiation of the first Mexican Revolution uh, and going forward across the 19th century? Obviously, there's a lot of details to get into, and we could get into Juarez and liberalism and everything, but what do you think someone would need to know to understand, broadly speaking, this central relationship to what it means to be, um, as someone might say, a United Statesian or in more, you know, common parlance and American vis-a-vis um, -vis Mexico in particular? Yeah, I think the first thing to think about is that in the, the last years of, of Spanish colonial rule and what was then known as New Spain, then eventually becomes Mexico, is that the Spanish crown and then the newly independent Mexican state did something that kind of came back and bit them in the ass, which was encouraging Anglo migration into Texas, right? And, and that in the, in the late colonial era and then definitely in the early 1820s, um, that then creates this dramatic issue um, in the 1830s where, where Texas breaks away and, and gains its independence from Mexico. I mean, I think that's really important to think about, uh, one, because it's always good to bash on Texas, but two, uh, it sets into motion what eventually becomes like the biggest event in, in U.S.-Mexican relations in the 19th century, which is the U.S.-Mexico War, right? Or as it's known in Mexico, the War of, of North American Aggression um, that happens in the middle of the 19th century, right? It's more or less instigated by, you know, the U.S. annexing Texas, it's Polk, you know, President Polk uh, making the annexation of Texas part of his, of his campaign platform. He wins the election and essentially the U.S. generates a border skirmish and uses a and invades Mexican territory, and that becomes the excuse for the, for the war. Um, and it, uh, 
Uh, Tejas y Coahuila is that is that the territory they invade? Am, yeah, am I remembering yeah, that yeah. correctly? Um, and yeah. Texas was like a what is modern yeah, day yeah. Texas? Yeah. Um, exactly. And it was it was that war was over allegedly an issue over the border, right? Mexico thought the border was in one river north, and 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 the U.S. argued against it and and argued that the main that the main border was was what is now the Rio Bravo or the or in Mexico or the Rio Grande in the U.S. Um, and this is this is becomes the the main the, the the most important moment right for that relationship because as a result of this war uh, Mexico loses close to half of its national territory right what is now the Western United States um, you have a whole generation of U.S. military officers who are who cut their teeth in this war right so a lot of the guys that then come out in the Civil War they all like fought in this war um, it becomes a central component of like military culture as well right like the the, the Marine song has that bit about the halls of Montezuma. Um, it also, on, a, on an interesting note, it's the first yeah, line. Right. Yeah, the first line from the halls of Montezuma to the shores of yeah. Uh, I think it was either the first or second like amphibious landing that the Marines had done was to land in Veracruz and then more or less retrace Hernan Cortez's uh, journey into what is now Mexico City, and, and they took it over. Um, you also the interesting thing that also is, is to think about how it generated. Um, this was an unpopular war in the U.S. Right, and this is where we get the famous tract on civil disobedience by Henry David Thoreau. He was. He goes to jail because he refuses to pay a poll tax that was used to finance the war. Um, and, we, and we get this, this influential text on, on civil disobedience. Um, this, so this becomes, this creates what is now the, more or less, there's a Gadsden Purchase of 1853, but it's more or less what we now recognize as the U.S.-Mexico border. Um, the interesting thing, as I talk about in the piece, is that the people who are actually in control of this border, pretty much into the late 19th century, were these different indigenous polities are extremely powerful from the Kiowas and the Comanches in the East in what is now Texas to an assortment of different Apache polities in New Mexico and especially in Arizona with the Chiricahuas, right? So, so for the rest of the, the, 20, the 19th century, it, Mexico and the U.S. actually cooperate. Like these, they, 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 have, they have competing settler colonial visions, but they cooperate to secure the border. Um, and, and, is this a porfiriato? Yeah. During the Perfuriato. So maybe you could explain, because I think this is so crucial because most Americans don't know what that is. Could you explain who is Porfirio Diaz and how does he re relate to um, the United States? Because he's the famous, you know, Mexico is so close to uh, so far from God, it's so close to the United States guy. So people might know that line. But who is this crucial figure in the in the history of I'm North glad America? you said that line, Danny, because I said that line so many times. I feel like, OK, I can't say it, but <laughs> it's so far from God, so close to the United States. Uh, but it's like yeah, perfect. People so know, perfect. yeah. Um, that's why we keep referencing it. So Porfirio Diaz was, um, he was a, a, so another moment I should have talked about is when the French invade, Napoleon III um, invades Mexico in the 1860s. And this is another brief moment, eventually it will get of like transnational cooperation, particularly between Lincoln, Abraham Lincoln and Benito Juarez, who was president of Mexico at the time, Mexico's first and, and only indigenous president uh, to this day. Anyway, Porfirio Diaz becomes this war hero during the, the, the French intervention. Um, he essentially, he then will take power uh, via, after a coup and a president in an election in the 1870s. Um, he serves four years, uh, then hands off power to one of his buddies and then takes power again in the eight, in 1880. And he will become an authority. Very Putin-esque. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, <laughs> oh God, man, you guys are gonna get us that, in trouble but, uh, here with this. The, the, that's the, way we the can, Putin obsessive. Putin does the same thing with Medvedev. <laughs> This is how we can make this legible. We can make this legible to a foreign policy blog by comparing Porfirio Diaz to, to Putin. Um, 
So he, he decides to stay, hold on to power. So from like 1880 until 1910, Porfirio Diaz is, is more or less a dictator of Mexico. He goes to the performance of elections. Mexico has a Congress, it has a Supreme Court, but the power is in, in the presidency with Porfirio Diaz. He, he, under, he, he, he consolidates a process of modernization of the country. Uh, so things like uh, the, the interactional railways, telegraph, electrification. He courts foreign capital to create this very exploitative uh, socioeconomic model, right, that, that plunders indigenous and peasant land, hands it over to domestic and foreign capitalists. Um, so by the time we get to 1910, on the eve of the, of the Mexican Revolution, which is the first social peasant revolution of the 20th century globally, something like 90% of Mexican pe uh, peasant communities have lost their land in like the preceding three decades. Um, and, but you know, it's interesting to read the press at the time because like the American press loved Porfirio Diaz. They would, they, they called him the Nebuchadnezzar of Latin America. They compared him to Theodore Roosevelt, to George Washington. They're like all these, um, they had these all like these, just, they, he was the greatest statesman of the era for, for the American press. And it's kind of useful to think of him, I think, at least from my Americanist perspective, and tell me if, uh, if I'm wrong, as kind of this right-wing progressive, as someone who wants to modernize Mexico, but using essentially authoritarian means to do so. Um, you know, very masculinist, you know, very, you know, extractivist invitations of foreign capital, which does mirror elements of the right-wing uh, of the progressive movement in the United States, of which Theodore Roosevelt was this, this um, figure. So it's interesting you see sort of these modernization projects happening at roughly the same time, and which from a European history perspective is called the fin de yeah. siècle, you know, the end of yeah. the cycle, and then coming to a head in the North Atlantic in um, World War One and in uh, North America with the Mexican Revolution. Yeah, there's a, this great Argentine historian of Mexico, Adolfo Gili, he talks, he, he frames it historically from the end of the Paris Commune to like the, the Mexican Revolution, right? The Belle Epoque and the, and the fall of it, right? So um, which is interesting to think about because you did have common arts who survived and, and made their way to Mexico. Uh, yeah, but the theme of the theme of Porfirio Diaz is is order and progress. Like by the time we get into the early 1900s, he receives this this award from the Mexican Congress, and the award says something to like he this we're we're awarding this to the man who pacified and modernized the nation or something like that, right? So so you're exactly right. The the smart thing that Porfirio Diaz did though is he recognized that given Mexico's uh, location. The American economy and American capital could easily dominate it. So he was very good at playing off like European capital versus American capital to prevent the Americans from exerting too much influence. So even though he's an authoritarian leader who's all for foreign capital, he's loved by Wall Street and the U.S. press. He's smart enough to know that um, if he doesn't play these capitalist powers off against one another, they're going to be dominated by the U.S., which more or less still happens. Something like 60 percent of the Mexican economy uh, in 1910 is controlled by, by American capital interests. So how does that lead into the revolution? Because I think the Mexican Revolution is one of the three most important events in 20th century history. And in the United States, at least, you know, if you take your general history course, you might not learn anything about it. So um, what is what is crucial? What, what should people listening to this who, you know, don't <laughs> study Mexican history for a living? What should they understand about the revolution and why is it important and how does it shape U.S.-Mexican relations for the next several decades? Perhaps? I think one reason why it's important from an American perspective is that it's really the revolution that creates uh, the physical uh, and military infrastructure of what we now know as the U.S.-Mexico border, right? So before... 
before the Mexican Revolution, it's the, the division is, is as a story in Rachel St. John's described, it's like a line in the sand, right? Like people are able to go back and forth, right? For most of the 19th century, indigenous powers controlled access in the border. Um, there's all sorts of funny stories, stories about, you know, American and Mexican cartographers trying to draw out the border map. And uh, they had to ask indigenous groups for like permission to do so, and they needed their protection. Um, but it's really the, the 1910 Mexican Revolution where we see the the gradual militarization of the border. So most, so most people would talk about the militarization of the U.S.-Mexico border as beginning like in the late 70s, perhaps the 1980s. But this is a longer process. Like you have, by 1919, you have 60,000 troops on the U.S.-Mexico border. It's the largest U.S. military force since the Civil War, like even bigger than what they used in the Spanish-American War of 1898. Um, and it's, you know, in, in the next piece that I'm writing that I eventually I'll send to Derek, uh, you have all these guys like, like, uh, General John Pershing, who are referred to as like these prairie imperialists, who uh, it, you know in, are essentially empire makers of the U.S. in in Cuba, in in Puerto Rico, uh, in in the Caribbean during the 1898 Spanish American War. They go to the Philippines, and they come back to the U.S.-Mexico border during the Mexican Revolution, because as soon as this great social peasant revolution breaks out in 1910, the U.S. government starts to send down uh, you know militia, National Guard, and the military to prevent the spillover of revolutionary violence. And it, this, another thing to think about the Mexican Revolution, it's a peasant-led revolution that was motivated by, by, by a couple of things, mainly the return of plundered land and, and this reinstitution or recreation of like local municipal democracy. It varied across regions and, and, and geographic locations, but by and large, that's what motivated uh, this peasant revolution. And you know, we can get into the different phases of it. I mean, you had the radical peasant leaders, South, like Emiliano Zapata, you had Pancho Villa in the North, um, who actually was a darling of the Americans until until they turned on him and he invaded, and he invaded right? He invaded <laughs> in, in 1916. We can talk about that because um, right, that punitive expedition. Can we actually talk a little bit about? I would like to talk a little bit about. Correct me if I'm wrong. The 1914 Wilson invasion of Veracruz and then uh, Villa's invasion of, of America, because I do think they're important events that not many people um, might know about. Yeah, so I think it was in April of 1914 when um, in the middle of, well, let me step back for a second. So you had the revolution that, out, that ousted Porfirio Diaz in 1911. So actually that phase of the revolution, like they managed to depose a, a dictator who had been in power for three decades relatively quickly. Most of the fighting occurred in Northern Mexico. Um, the, the leader that... Are, and he goes to Spain, uh, right? So, yeah. He goes to Spain. Yeah, he like, takes like a German ship to yeah, Europe. Like yeah, many exiled leaders. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> and he, he never comes back. Uh, the leader then at that point is this like odd little, the way he's described, he's like a spiritist. He's a, he's a vegetarian, uh, Francisco Madero. Um, he, becomes, he becomes the leader of the revolution. But at that point, the revolution was over. They had political uh, elections in 1911. He, he's elected overwhelmingly president of Mexico. He's overthrown in 1913 by his closest uh, highest ranking military general, a guy by the name of Victoriano Huerta. He has help uh, including with the U.S. ambassador to Mexico, Henry Lane Wilson, whose, whose papers are actually at USC where I did my graduate research. And surprisingly, there's no admission of, that he participated in, in this coup d'etat. I was really hoping <laughs> I would find that smoking gun document, but I didn't. Um, so that unleashes then uh, essentially like a civil war within Mexico. And you have all these uh, revolutionary coalition in the north, and you have the Zapatistas in the south fighting against this who, this guy who they call the usurper. This guy started to ally with, with the Germans and other European powers, and that becomes the excuse for weapons and for armament, and that becomes the excuse for the U.S. 
to send in the Marines again in April of 1914 to take over Mexico's main um, port for the Caribbean and the Atlantic Ocean to prevent Victoriano Huerta from receiving German munitions and weapons. And, and again, you have another Marine intervention. You have someone like Smedley Butler who was involved in that operation. I think that's where he got his first Medal of Honor. Um, and the U.S. occupied uh, for, for several months, they occupied the port city of Veracruz. And eventually this puts pressure on uh, Victoriano Huerta and he's defeated in 1914. But then the Mexican revolution takes another turn and it becomes like a, a revolutionary class war between the most radical peasant factions of the revolution and more moderate uh, factions that were beholden to Francisco Madero, who is now referred to in Mexico as the, the martyr of democracy. Um, and the U.S., I think they leave Veracruz in early 1915, if I remember correctly. I might be wrong on that. Um, the, the, the revolution that gets decided on the battlefield and the most, the most radical peasant factions led by Emiliano Zapata and Pancho Villa, they're defeated on the battlefield at that moment. So Zapata's in the south and Villa's yeah. in the north, right? These are the critical lo geographic locations, which in Mexico, these are different totally. spaces and they have different relationships to yep. different commodities. And so just to give um, American listeners yeah. a sense of what's going on. So there's a peasant revolt in the south and a peasant revolt yeah. in the north. The one in the south is led by Emiliano Zapata. The one in the north is led by San yeah. uh, Pancho. You're exactly right. Radically different uh, history, uh, political, social, and cultural histories, right? If we were to write like a settler history of Mexico, that northern province would, would look similar to what happened in the U.S., whereas in the south, um, it, it's, it's particularly where Zapata was from, it's these like Spanish-owned sugar plantations who had plundered a lot of these peasant lands that had been owned by the same communities for like before even the Mexica or the Aztecs. Um, so they're defeated on the battlefield in 1915, and at that point, the U.S. starts to recognize a more moderate faction led by this, this landowner, uh, Venustiano Carranza. And, and that's where we get Villa getting really angry because up until that point, Villa was a darling of the U.S. press. He would have a U.S. Uh, US film company would accompany him to his battles and film him fighting. Um, he was kind of treated as like this noble savage, like John Reed. So John Reed is known for, uh, what is it? The, 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 his famous book on the, on the Russian Revolution. But yeah, his previous book was called Insurgent Mexico where he accompanied the Villistas. It's a fascinating book. So he's a socialist, right? So he has like a more a noble, savage perspective on Villa, um, which tends to be tends to be kind of like a mainstream depiction of Villa in the U.S. press. But once the U.S. turns against him in 1915 and Villa gets extremely angered, um, that's when Villa starts to plot his his invasion of, of the U.S., which happens in early 1916 when him and a couple hundred of his uh, most ardent fighters cross the U.S.-Mexico border and they attack the town of Columbus, New Mexico. Um, and actually, they're the ones who suffered the most casualties. But um, the whole idea from Villa's perspective was he wanted to draw the U.S. into another military intervention in Mexico. And then he could use that as a rallying point to make the current Mexican government look weak and beholden to U.S. interests. And he could get all these other revolutionaries to rally to his side. I mean, essentially, he was trying to get the U.S. in a quagmire. Uh, and the U.S. bit, right? They sent in the punitive expedition with what a yeah, shock yeah, that's so unlike really, us. That's just unheard of. <laughs> Which is, I mean, if you think about it, like, with, if you step back and think about, like, 1900 to 1934, Latin American U.S. relations in general, like, there's, like, 34 military interventions that the U.S. conducts. So what they do in Veracruz in 1914, they occupy Haiti in 1915, right, for almost 20 years. And then a year later, they send five to 6,000 troops into northern Mexico to chase Pancho Villa around for a year. And to anger peasant communities in northern Mexico, who eventually will will turn against these the, the, the punitive expedition, and 
and uh, and expel them. I, essentially, the, the Mexican government tells them that they have to leave in 1917. Um, and you have the, all these incidents, you know, you have a George, you have a young George Patton, but once again, continuing this tradition of the, the best U.S. military officers, like cutting their teeth in Mexico. You have George Patton, who is a guy, uh, an aide to Pershing. Um, and then you also have Eisenhower in this operation. And you actually have this incident where uh, Patton is driving these like Dodge Turing cars and he's driving them around shooting at people. Um, and, and then if you read, if you look up what George Patton talks about uh, his time in Mexico, he's the biggest piece of shit racist, but it, that should be unsurprising. Um, and, and, you know, so they, the, the U.S., the, this Pershing-led expedition failed, right? They have to leave the country in 1917. And allegedly, as they're departing, Villa is watching this happen. And he's alleged to have said they came in like eagles and they're leaving like wet hens. And like, I don't know, I, I, I tweeted that out thinking about Afghanistan when the U.S. left. And it's like a similar <laughs> dynamic. I mean, it's just, it, it, it's a similar dynamic, right? Um, but I think this, 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 the, the lesson of the punitive expedition, I think, is an important one. And it's a really undercovered, at least in mainstream, like, political and historical discussion, it's really undercovered. But I think it's really important to think about, not just for U.S.-Mexico relations, but just, like, what happens when the U.S. intervenes in another country based on them having been attacked to a certain extent. That's super interesting. And then, I mean, I find U.S.-Mexican relations just so fascinating. So I would like to go a little bit through the 20th century. We could do more or less detail depending on what you want. So the revolution ends in 21, I believe. And so what is the initial American response to the revolution? How do they deal with Cardenas, which is, I assume, why you stopped in 34 with 1900 to 1934. That's when Lazaro Cardenas assumes a presidency. And so, and then maybe talk just briefly about the Mexican miracle to get us to the 60s and 70s, because I think people have such a, they just don't understand this history. And I think it's important to, to give them a little pricey about what's going on. Yeah. So historians love to get into these amazing debates over periodization. So there's debates ongoing about when the, when the end of the Mexican revolution has been a long debate, but so generally the military phase ends around 1929-21, even though there's, there's violence throughout the twenties. Um, but generally like 1920-1940 is kind of the, the cultural phase, right? The, the consolidation of a post-revolutionary government and what it takes to actually make this thing, uh, this post-revolutionary state, like a real tangible thing, not going to be overthrown. And a party that ruled into two, right. until 2000, yeah. the pre, right? Or the, so what is the pre? Because people, what is the pre and, and how is it able to govern through various permutations and in various different ways? And there's a lot of complications, but it is the world's longest governing party, I believe. And it comes out of the Mexican Revolution. So what is the pre? That's, uh, that's only a question that has engendered 4,000 yeah, yeah, no. books. Great, great. Thanks, thanks, Maybe thanks. you could give yeah. you a little you spin have, on You it. have five minutes. Yeah. yeah, right. Thanks. And I think the pre is still in like the, are they still in the fourth international? Anyway, they're like, anyway, the PRI, um, let's see. So the, as I mentioned earlier, the, the most radical part of the Mexican revolution, these, these radical peasant leaders, uh, Villa and Zapata, they lost. Even though in 1914, there's this great moment where in December 1914, they marched into Mexico City, they occupied the seat of, of power. And, and this, this like unprecedented moment in Mexican history. Um, the guys who won were more or less northern Mexicans, middle class, you know, petit bourgeois. Um, they were nationalistic, but they also had, they were capitalists. Um, you know, 10 years of warfare taught them that they actually pay, had to pay attention to what workers and peasants wanted. So they had like these mixed these ideas about mixed economy in Mexico. 
Um, and you get this document, the 1917 Constitution, which is for its era, like the most radical constitution, right? It had social rights. It, it created the basis on paper, at least for a social democracy, labor, really progressive labor rights, uh, progressive, uh, uh, the, the redistribution of land. And, and the one that's going to really, that the, the, the nationalization and the redistribution of land, and then the nationalization of Mexican subsoil minerals are going to create a lot of tension with the U.S. from the 20s to the 30s, right? Because uh, the, the same constitutional article that allows for these things, um, if you put it into practice, then a lot of these like American landholders are going to lose their land. And then American oil companies and British were going to lose their hold over Mexican oil companies. And at that moment, like Mexico might be the one of the top three oil producers in the world. Um, so it's a very tense moment. There's, there's threats in 1919, 1920, 1921 of the U.S. intervening. You had uh, Jessica Kim has a great book about these L.A., uh, since you're in L.A., Danny, these L.A. capitalists who are writing letters to Congress saying we have to intervene. We have to invade, you know, protect our, our interests and protect uh, American foreign interests and in, in American lives, American property, American lives. And of course, the downtown square in L.A. is named after Jack Right, Pershing. of course, right. <laughs> it's right. Pershing Yeah, square. and where yeah. I did my research as a graduate student is named after Doheny, right? So it's all these contradictions, man, um, at least for me. So uh, <laughs> the, these, these radical progressive precepts of the Mexican Constitution, they, they remain largely unimplemented until the presidency of, of Lázaro Cárdenas, who is elected in 1934. He'll serve until 1940. And Mexican presidents serve one year, uh, one term, six years long. And he actually is known and remembered for actually implementing agrarian reform on a large scale throughout most of the country. And in March of 1938, after a labor dispute between Mexican workers, unionized oil workers, and British and American oil companies, in March of 1938, uh, Cardenas nationalizes Mexican oil. And that becomes another important moment in the relationship between the U.S. and Mexico. Um, there, you know, you can imagine American oil companies and British oil companies, one call for military intervention. Um, and then they, if that, when that wasn't heated, they started to call for a boycott of Mexican oil, which at that point, Cardenas turned around and said, okay, I'll just sell it to the Japanese, the Germans, and the Italians, which in 1938 was, was, a, was a pretty genius move, right? He knew how to read the, the geopolitical situation in terms of what was happening in Europe and, and in Asia at the same time. And that's Pemex, that's, right? The, or the antecedent to Pemex, but Petrolianos, Mexicanos, forgive yeah, me. Yeah, it becomes. But yeah, this is the Mexican state. That's what it, yes, that's what it becomes. And, and, you know, throughout Latin America in the 30s, the U.S. had to tolerate like nationalizations and more uh, like mixed economic models, right? Because of, because FDR uh, decided to be a good neighbor to, to Latin America um, to a certain extent. At the very least, they stopped intervening militarily like they had done the previous three decades. They kind of had to tolerate uh, these, these, I think, radical experiments throughout the region in implementing their own versions of social democracy. Um, and, and in Mexico, the nationalization of Mexican oil, um, essentially saying Mexican oil is for Mexicans, I think was a pretty radical move. And because of the global situation, um, that provided an opening for, for Cardenas to get away with it, right? Where in another time, you know, if, if this had happened 10 years later or 12 years later, well, we know what happened in Iran, right? Like something similar might have happened to Mexico at that point. Um, or, or Guatemala, Guatemala right? <laughs> with the yeah, yeah, exactly. Bands, yeah. Um, so uh, domestically, though, that... Cardenas, after the expropriation, really had to like tamper down on some of his more radical policies because there was a pretty ferocious right-wing counter-revolution in Mexico to the point where in 1940, instead of appointing his best friend, a fellow leftist as the next president of Mexico, a more conservative candidate took over. And that's generally like how me where Mexicans will say the Mexican Revolution 
kind of ended, right? Once Scott Adonis leaves office and a more conservative assortment of presidents took over, and, and the PRI um, is the, the single ruling party that's, that's overseeing all of this. It changes names three times, but essentially the, the PRI are the guys who won the Mexican Revolution and who will rule Mexico from the 1920s up until the year 2000 when they, when they allow themselves to be voted out of, out of office. And they definitely took a more conservative bent um, after 1940. Uh, they took, um, you know, they, they did, they used ISI, right? Import substitution policies economically, but, you know, they were still, they were still dependent on foreign capital. They were still making space for, for domestic capital and foreign capital. You don't have, you know, Cardenas talked a lot about having a workers' democracy. Uh, that pretty much is, is erased, right? By the time we get to the beginning of the Cold War in the late 40s, when you have a purge of communist and socialist and anarchist leaders, from a from Mexican unions, who then uh, were very tight to the ruling party, and it, and these unions became one of the pillars of support for the PRI for the next five six decades. So essentially, what you have the Mexican miracle then is this state subsidy state subsidy uh, a rapid industrialization subsidized by uh, uh, the state and built on the backs of workers and peasants that will enable something like six to 8% annual GDP growth from like the early 1940s up until the late 1960s. So again, from a foreign perspective, like the US press loves the Mexican miracle. All they see is GDP growth, but actually from the 50s and 60s, you see socioeconomic inequality widening. And throughout this whole period, you have these dispersed localized instances of popular protest and rebellion against the PRI's model of capitalist modernization and, and authoritarian political rule. So then usually like the, the famous model that, that people think about then as this kind of coming to an end is what happened in 1968, a week or so before the, the Summer Olympics, when um, after a summer long, vibrant, massively expanding Mexico City student movement and protest on October 2nd, 1968, the Mexican military fires upon uh, a student gathering, killing probably hundreds, perhaps even thousands. We don't, we don't have an exact casualty toll of, of students. Um, and this... Yeah, at the Plaza de las right, Tres yeah. Culturas. Um, right? And there's video of this, you, right. you can find it on YouTube, right? There's, there's video of this showing when, the moment where it happens. It seems like uh, there's in this, this uh, plaza that has both the remains of a Mexica temple, uh, an old colonial church, and state-built worker housing, right? So it's, that's the Plaza de las Tres Culturas, the, the Plaza de Tres Culturas. You apparently have government snipers in one of these buildings who fire upon their own soldiers. Right, right. And then that leads the soldiers to respond against the students, thinking that the students had fired against them. And it leads to this horrific massacre that kills most likely hundreds. There's also, they also went into the buildings after, and we don't know how many people were taken from those, from those uh, apartments either. Um, and that, that really marks the end of, of uh, to a certain extent, this, this, this idea that Mexico was, uh, a preferred third-way model of development for a global South nation. Even though a week later they held the Summer Olympics, you know, the first time that a global South nation had hosted it, and it seemed to have been a success. Yeah, the famous yeah. Mexico City Olympics, and that's the Black Power yeah, photo, I believe, exactly comes right. from that that Olympics, right? It becomes this very um, important moment in sort of the, the history of international sport. Derek, I've been dominating the conversation. I could go on, but <laughs> no, why don't this you is great. Uh, take this over is great for stuff. a second? Um, Alex, I wanted to, um, to sort of bring this back to uh, the foreign policy community, the blob, as we sometimes refer to them. Um, there's When I was looking for 
um, an image to to pair with your article. It was very or your column. Uh, I found this this very interesting. I think nineteen uh, sixteen newspaper editorial cartoon about the Pancho Villa expedition, uh, which has Pancho Villa like running away from the border while Uncle Sam, like the actual Uncle Sam, uh, with a rifle in one hand is like bounding over Mm. this barbed wire fence separating Mexico from the U.S., like chasing Pancho Villa down. Uh, The imagery is is very evocative, and I think it speaks to something else that you talk about in the column that I'd like you to sort of maybe discuss a little bit more here. Uh, This notion, which I think begins, well, maybe it begins is the wrong word, but takes on a recognizable contemporary form during the 1910s and during the Mexican Revolution and has carried through to the present day. This idea that the the U.S.-Mexico border keeps coming back as a threat to national security in discourse in Washington. And you write about it and you say, we've we've been doing for decades now, militarizing the border, securitizing the border over and over again. And yet, rhetorically, uh, the border has never been a bigger, it's never been more open. It's never been easier to get across. It's never been a bigger threat to national security than it is right now. And that's a pattern that that happens, uh, you know, multiple times uh, over the last several decades. I wonder if you could maybe talk a little bit about that, the dichotomy between the physical reality and the the political rhetoric. Yeah, I mean, that's one of the things that I still... um like I don't really have a, it's, it's a productive lack of an answer, I guess, because it is, it, it is striking that um, just in the last three decades, and especially after 9-11, you have in, in the U.S.-Mexico border what, um, you know, Ely Wise, I can't remember that, the scholar's name, we talked about the politics of, of verticality and how, how um, in Palestine, the way that, that, that is, the Israel state controls populations is to essentially doing like 3D, multi-dimensional, three-dimensional counterinsurgency. You control the air, you control the ground, and you control the subsoil, right? That, that's become like the U.S.-Mexico border, right? You have an assortment of really good journalists and, and a- academics who talk about how, you know, the, the U.S., the U, what is it, the Arizona-Palestine border, because it's very similar models of, of, of control. Um, and yet, it's still out of control, Right. And, and it, it, it's on the on the one hand, we can think, OK, well, these politicians are just being, you know, they're lying. They're being disingenuous. Um, they're going to go, you know, like Ted Cruz did a, what, a couple months ago where he, that video of him actually going into the Rio Grande and talking, you know, he looked like Elmer Fudd um, chasing after undocumented migrants and talking about how it's, it's so insecure. Look, look, these people are crossing um, and there's no one here to stop them except good old Ted Cruz. Um, but it, it's it's. The way I see the recent manifestation of this, it, it, ser- it serves a really important political goal for, for both political parties. Again, this is a bipartisan war on migrants. It just it functions in a different way. It allows the Democrats to say, look, we're being tough on, we really believe in national security. The, the, the border is always a threat to national security. It can never be secure enough. So we're going to show um, how, how much we care about this by, uh, you know, increasing the border patrol ranks by, you know, tenfold and, and giving them military weaponry and giving them all the latest counterinsurgency technology like drones and stuff. And then on the right, it allows them to, to wage this, this, like, this, this very distinct white nationalist argument that it goes back all the way to the Mexican Revolution, 
that says, look, we cannot let these people in here because they don't say this out loud as much, I guess. Now, if you look at some of the stuff in 1910, 1920s, they, they will, you know, these Mexican quote unquote mongrels are going to affect the white body politic of the U.S. That's still the subtext today. Um, but in the 1910 and 1920s, that was a real concern. And that's how people talked about it. Um, so it, it serves, it, it has a very specific political function, I think, to present the border as always out of control when in our time, it's never been more secure. It's, they've weaponized, for instance, just south of where I am right now, they've weaponized the Sonoran Desert, right? So they've turned it into the land of open graves as anthropologist Jason de Leon talks about, right? They have created their border defenses to funnel people into the Sonoran Desert on the logic that, well, these people wouldn't be crazy enough to, right, to die. It's funneling people to, die, to literally right. die. Yeah, I just want to totally. underline that. It, it, it's literally forcing them yep. to die in some of the worst conditions possible to, to, to literally yep. dehydrate themselves and they know to that. death. It's absolutely yeah. barbaric. They, they know that. They, it's in, their plans yes. that they, they, in their plans that are readily, readily available online from 93 and 1994, they know this. They're, they're, they use really interesting euphemisms for it, but they know that this is going to be the result. And actually, they use body count as like a metric of their success. Right. This is prevention through deterrence. That's what the policy became known as the 90s. And it's still in operation today. And we've what, maybe 10,000 people have died in the desert since, since that we know of, at least seven to 10,000 since 1994. Um, so since NAFTA, essentially, essentially NAFTA. I mean, that's basically. another thing that comes up. That's another thing we should probably yeah. talk about is that this all happens at the same time. that there's no. Yeah, I want to get to that. I, I want to get to that in a second. So. Very briefly, because we're going off of um, migration, maybe you could just talk a little bit about the Bracero program, uh, which t occurs, it's basically coterminous with the quote-unquote Mexican miracle uh, from, I think it's 42 to 64. Um, so maybe you could just mention what the Bracero program was for people who might not know um, or have ever Yeah, heard so it. like, again, one of these other contradictions in, in the history of U.S.-Mexico is that um, – particularly Southwest agribusiness needed Mexican labor, still needs Mexican labor, um, but only in, under certain conditions, right? So from the 20s to the 30s, um, throughout the 20s, you have mass Mexican migration to the U.S., primarily because Southwest agribusiness demands their labor and they demand cheap labor. And that's why Mexican laborers don't get included in that 1924 National Origins Act that radically cut down quotas uh, for people, essentially people of the people of color or what would be known as like the swarthy people of Europe, right? Like Southern and Eastern uh, uh, Europeans. The, there's an exception made in for the Western and, and Asian migrants. They're not allowed to come to the U.S. There's an exception made for Mexican migrants because of agribusiness interests in places like Texas, Arizona, and California that really need cheap Mexican labor to, to grow their business. The Great Depression interrupts that. Um, uh, hundreds of thousands of Mexicans are then expelled, whether they're Mexican nationals or, or Actually, Mexican-Americans, doesn't matter, hundreds of thousands of them are, are coerced into leaving the country in the early 30s. But because of World War II, um, there's a severe labor shortage, and Mexico and the U.S. create this labor agreement called the Bracero Program that goes into place in the early 1940s. It'll be in operation until 1964, as you mentioned, Danny. And this, this is a, it was a way to bring contract migrant labor into the U.S., and then send them back when their contract is done. Again, it's never the goal to allow them to stay here. And actually, most people wouldn't want to stay here. They actually wanted to go back, um, which is another irony of the militarization of the border. The more they militarize the border, the more undocumented migrants they actually keep in the U.S. when a lot of these people actually want to go back home and recreate a life there with American dollars. But that's another story we can talk about. Um, 
So this this labor contract program will be empowered. It will be in effect until 1964. Highly exploitative, right? There's, I believe there's still ongoing court cases of braceros or their descendants who never got paid what they what their, their contracts that said they were going to get paid. Um, you had uh, braceros go all throughout the Southwest, up into the Northwest. Um, Mario Cienfuentes has a great book about braceros in like Idaho and Oregon, where where he grew up, uh, which is really good. You should check it out. Um, and it's at the same time, though, you also have the legal contract workers who are coming as part of the Bracero program. And then you also have women and children who are not a part of that program start to come as undocumented migrants in the 1940s, 50s and 60s. And in the early 50s, you get this thing called Operation Wetback, where you have essentially a, like a massively expanded like Mitt Romney self-deportation program uh, where a, a, an array of different police and military units of the U.S. tried to round up undocumented migrants and send them back to Mexico. They did operations in Chicago. They organized operations along the Texas-Mexico uh, border and the U.S.-Mexico border. They were even in the Mississippi Delta rounding up undocumented migrants and sending them to the U.S. Um, Proto-ICE, like a proto Yeah, and it was the Border group. Patrol at that point yeah. who were in the, under the auspices of the INS who were doing this. But there's also like police involvement and there's also uh, military involvement, the National Guard. Right. The National Guard was sent to the border uh, again in this show of saying we are resecuring the border. I mentioned that because this is kind of foreshadowed what's going to happen in the in the 70s once the Bracero program ends and you have the Hart Seller Act of 1965 that gets rid of that previous immigration act. Uh, they removes racial co- quotas for, for immigrants who are allowed to come to the U.S., but it also places a cap on the number of Mexican migrants that can come to the U.S. legally. So people who had come to the U.S. legally to work Prior to 1965, after 65, they're going to be coming um, as undocumented migrants. So by the time you get to the 70s, you have millions of, of uh, hundreds of thousands, possibly more than a million, undocumented migrants coming to the U.S., fulfilling the very same labor functions that, were, that, that had um, existed prior to this Immigration Act. But now, because of this one legislation, we're considered undocumented. And that's when you start to see this talk, really hyperbolic talk in the 70s and 80s about um, you know, as one LA Times article puts it, uh, the third world has established a beachhead in the U.S. And undocumented migrants are like, everything that's awful about the global South is placed on the backs of these undocumented migrants who are, again, coming to the U.S. to do the work that no one else in the U.S. wants to do. And in the piece that I'm writing now, a connecting theme between, you know, U.S. empire abroad and and what happens in, in, in the 70s is this guy, General Leonard Chapman, who was the commandant of the U.S. Marine Corps, he was the guy who failed in securing the North Vietnam, South Vietnam border. Well, he becomes the head of the INS, the Border Patrol, in the early 1970s. And he, if you, if you, watch, if you read his recollections or you watch the interviews that he gave, he's the guy who gets credit for, um, he says it, he's, I'm the preacher, I'm the guy who awakened Americans to the dangers of undocumented migration, illegal coming in, as undermining our country. So by the 70s and 80s, especially during the Reagan administration, when you have all this talk about the Soviet Union, the evil, evil empire, this and that, you actually have ghouls like Elliot Abrams or American Enterprise, what AEI, whatever that think tank is. What they're worried about is undocumented migrants, and they're linking them to narco traffickers, and then linking them to like the Soviet Union. Um, and they're all conflating. They're conflating all of these different actors into the figure of the undocumented migrant, and the undocumented migrant, therefore, is some sort of like civilizational threat that's going to bring the U.S. down in the 1980s. Um, and, and that, that well, I'll stop there because I know you want to talk about NAFTA, Dan. Well, that's fair. I mean, that's really interesting because it's, 
again, sort of repeating itself. You know, undocumented migrants are this cipher that we pour whatever the great enemy of the time is. You know, we kind of associate with the Soviets. We associated them with, uh, you know, during the Cold War. Now, you, you know, the as we talked about at the beginning of the this interview, the the idea, you know, after nine eleven, that they were uh, being infiltrated by terrorists, and the terrorists were adopting, uh, you know, Latin sounding names so that they could get across the border with migrants. And it's it's just sort of this like they it gets attached to every. It seems like it's attached to every national security threat that comes along. I just saw I, I shared. It on, on Twitter yesterday, uh, a headline that's, that asked, um, will, will, will the Taliban ally themselves with Mexican drug cartels? Like it's, it's, it's like, it's so yeah, it's in this again. Yeah, this, exactly. This, so exactly. Wh- whereas in the seventies and eighties, it was the Sandinistas working with the PLO and the Kremlin to bring drugs into the U S uh, our right. current manifestation of it is Mexican drug cartels working with Hezbollah, Al Qaeda, and now the Taliban apparently to challenge U.S. empire. And even when it's not a human threat, I mean, the the issue of the border has become part of the debate about COVID. And, you know, that's become a justification for sort of uh, heaping restrictions and misery on on migrants trying to get across. It's it's really fascinating the way that this this is tacked on to every every major foreign policy issue. Yeah, no. And I think the. The, the, the Puerto Rican journalist Juan Gonzalez has a book called Harvest of Empire, and the, and the title is a thesis to it, where he says, look, Latin American migrants, Caribbean migrants that have come to the U.S. are a product or a harvest of U.S. empire. So the U.S. creates the very conditions that force these people to then come to the U.S. Um, and then once they try to come to the U.S., they, they, they wage a war against them while also waging wars in the very homelands that these people left behind. Right. And this is another constant that you see, right? whether it's in the Cold War with what the U.S. did supporting these death squad regimes in Central America and then creating these massive refugee flows. Um, or, you know, what happened beginning in 2010, 11 and 12, where they didn't they, they weren't necessarily death squad regimes in Central America, but the U.S. was supporting, you know, free trade agreements in Central America that devastated uh, the, the, the economic livelihoods of, of, of poor people who then come to the U.S. to seek asylum. Right. Yeah, so there's two big topics that I want to cover before we go. The first is U.S.-Mexican economic relations and then the drug war. So why don't we start with the first, and maybe you could talk a little bit about the 1982 Mexican default on its debt, which is, I think, a really critical moment in the history of international political economy, and then 94 NAFTA and what was going on uh, there. Uh, And then we'll turn to the the drug war. Yeah, these are like super easy topics. Um, that will, I can do in like a minute. Um, so yeah, so the Mexican default in 1982, which was the largest of its, for its time, right? It was the big, it was the largest default by a sovereign nation to its debt. Um, it, it really quickly in the seventies, um, there were discoveries of potential oil deposits in Mexico that then gave Mexico expanded lines of credit, um, to private U S banks, mostly private U S banks, right? So Mexico, Right. In the context of the OPEC oil crisis. Right. So the people are looking for new oil deposits to ensure that the U.S. is not doesn't have to rely on Middle Eastern oil after after that that whole disaster. So sorry. No, no, that's 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 definitely the the global uh, situation. Domestically, um, the PRI starts to spend a lot because there's a series of um, both armed and, uh, and and non armed political mobilizations throughout the decade that are really challenging the hegemony of the PRI. 
So what, one thing that the PRI does then is it's, it dramatically increases its domestic spending. The guy who was in power in the 70s, Luis Echeverria, kind of self-styled himself as another Cardenas. But this type of domestic spending, the way I view it, is, is really like a form of counterinsurgency to tamp down on popular mobilizations that were breaking out throughout the country. So they, the Mexico starts to borrow heavily. And, and when interest rates were raised uh, by the U.S. Federal Reserve, um, it also just dramatically increased the amount of debt that Mexico owed to these private banks to the point where, as in 1982, they defaulted because they could no longer pay back that debt. And, and, and it began, uh, you know, the lost decades in Latin America. It wasn't just a Mexican thing, but it triggered a, a debt trap cycle throughout the rest of the region um, from it took a long time for these countries to get out. I really, it's not until like the pink tide of the early 2000s where some of these, some of these countries uh, started to get out of the effects of the, the 1982 debt crisis. There were some cool like alternatives to it. Like there was a discussions in the mid eighties to create a debtors cartel, which would have been, I would have supported that cartel um, in terms of like bringing down like the, the capital, the, the, the power of us capital and global capital through the IMF and, and, and through the, just what is now known as like the Washington consensus. Um, but it did come to fruition. And this is, so the response of the Mexican government, um, you know, having to adopt austerity uh, measures to, to, to get more loans to pay off the pre-existing loans that led them to default in the first place, they really started to dismantle some of the welfare state uh, apparatuses, apparatus that had been um, uh, built in the, in, the, in the decades after the Mexican Revolution. So those like kind of the beginning of the neoliberal period in, in Mexico. And the culmination of it really is, is NAFTA, right? They start to negotiate North American Free Trade Agreement in the early 90s, 91, 92, um, and it goes into effect officially in, in, uh, January, on January 1st, 1994, the day also that these, uh, these neo-Zapatista Mayan guerrillas took up arms in the southern state of Chiapas and, and fought the Mexican army for about 10 to 12 days in, in 1994. In the discussions for NAFTA, though, both the, the Americans were, knew that this free trade agreement was going to displace millions of Million, millions of Mexican peasants who would not be able to compete with U.S. agribusiness being given free entry into what would once had been a closed Mexican market. So, so they know that, and that's why at the same time you get the closing off of the, the mili- that increased militarization of the U.S.-Mexico border that, again, had already been underway for decades, but it really gets uh, intensified in the 1990s, and that's when you get the, this program of prevention through deterrence where you militarize major urban crossing points, and you, you, and you try to funnel people, get them to die, essentially, by trying to cross through the Sonoran Desert. So they know that people are going to be displayed by, displaced by free trade agreements, despite the rhetoric of uh, a rising tide lifts all boats type of shit. Um, but they knew that what was going to happen. So uh, obviously there's a deep history of the history of narcotics and drugs um, in, in North America, broadly speaking. And there's a, a very deep history of, you know, Miguel uh, Felix Angel Gallardo, I believe his name was sort of the, the, king, the kingpin of the 80s and, and 90s. But why don't we start in 2006, just to give us a starting point, and Felipe Calderon's escalation of the modern instantiation of what has been called the drug war. And even though there, I, I understand there are critiques of that framing, and I appreciate those critiques, but in, in modern American culture, that's generally how it's referred to. So maybe you could talk very briefly about the economic effects of NAFTA and how that does or doesn't lead into the escalation of Calderon's escalation of, of the drug war and where we find ourselves uh, today. Yeah, so one of the, the groups that most benefited from 
liberalizing trade between Mexico and the U.S. as a consequence of NAFTA were narco traffickers, right? Now they had um, essentially open borders, right? Because NAFTA is open borders for capital and for trade, but not for, for people, for laborers, for workers, right? So um, once you start to get heavy traffic of, of cars and, and, and trucks, narco traffickers just started putting their drugs on these like semi-trailers, semi cars, increased, the increased border volume allowed them to kind of make the calculations of how many shipments they needed to put together. They knew that they were going to lose a couple at the border, but they figured out, you know, if we get eight out of 10 trucks across, we're going to make a pretty good profit. So actually narco traffickers and, and drug trafficking organizations made off like bandit as a consequence of NAFTA. Um, because most like 90 to 95% of, of illicit drugs that come into the U.S. are coming through, um, are coming through uh, major urban crossing points on the border. They're not going through the Sonoran Desert, even though there's been like these cool stories of, uh, you know, the use of catapults to launch bales of marijuana over the border. That's or, or El Chapo's famous tunnels, right, which were a thing. And these tunnels were really uh, uh, successful in getting illicit drugs across. But the vast majority of drugs are coming over through major transnational urban crossing points. Um, and they're coming across in semi-trailers and a variety of different vehicles. So drug trafficking organizations have made off like bandits. Uh, as a consequence of NAFTA. They, they've made a lot of money. They're successful entrepreneurs. In terms of how we get to 2006, um, you know, there's an argument that, that's still in debate between uh, historians and, and sociologists and political scientists about how the, pre the, the transfer of political power in the year 2000 from the PRI, who had been in power for decades, to the PAN, which is a right-wing conservative party, destabilized previous arrangements that the PRI had at various levels with different drug trafficking organizations, Essentially, the PAN didn't know the rules of the game. They violated all sorts of rules, and that then led to, to violence in different, in different areas. There's another narrative that talks about how it, once El Chapo escapes from prison in the early 2000s, he then goes to war and he tries to expand his, his uh, empire beyond the state of Sinaloa. What we know about 2006, though, is that Felipe Calderón eked out a, a presidential election over the current president of Mexico, AMLO, Andre Manuel, Andres Manuel López Obrador. Uh, my, uh, Lopez Obrador to this day maintains that there was uh, fraud, electoral fraud, M maybe, right, considering the long history of electoral fraud that the PRI engaged in um, throughout the history of 20th century Mexico. Um, I think the, the final tally, I think Calderón won by two-tenths or two, three-tenths of a percentage point. And one of the first things that Calderón does when he assumes office in December of 2006 is to use the, mili the Mexican military as the main fighting force against these drug trafficking organizations that had started to war with one another to control uh, production zones, but also uh, border crossing transit zones as well. Um, and this is the, what is now generally referred to as the drug, the most recent iteration of the, of the drug war in Mexico. Uh, we have probably, we have good documentation that 91,000 people have been disappeared as a consequence of this conflict since 2006, it's probably double that, right? Um, and something like over 400,000 people have died in Mexico since 2006. Right. So the, the bloodshed is just industrial proportions. Like it's horrific. Does Ayotzinapa, maybe we could talk just for a second, end on Ayotzinapa and what that reveals about the, the recent state of the drug war or, or, or what that suggests to us, how it's operating today. So maybe you could explain what that refers to. And then we could end on sort of the present state of U.S.-Mexican relations. Yeah, so Ayotzinapa, is, it, Ayotzinapa will take us back to the, as one of the conquests of the revolution, right? Ayotzinapa is is a rural teacher training school located in the current state of Guerrero. Uh, the idea of these rural teacher training schools was to send the sons and daughters of campesinos 
to school to become rural school teachers, and then they could go back and work in, in, in rural communities. Um, Ayotzinapa has a very radical militant history that, that I cover in my first book, right? These, these uh, guerrilla fighters that emerged in the 60s and 70s came from rural teacher training schools like Ayotzinapa. In 2014, in September, actually we're, we're close to the, the, the anniversary of this horrific event. September of 2014, um, a group of Ayotzinapa students went to the city of Iguala to, to hijack buses. There's a tradition in Mexico where students will hijack, borrow, let's say, borrow buses so they can take trips. Yeah, it's, it's ritualized. It's, it's, it's ritualized. It's not no. a genuine hijacking. It's a ritualized, it's a ritualized thing, thing where they borrow, they ex momentarily expropriate these buses so they can go to Mexico City to participate in pop popular protests. In this case, they wanted to go to Mexico City to commemorate the October 2nd student massacre that we talked about earlier. Um, it, it, something happened that night where 43 of the students were attacked, or the students in general were attacked, and uh, by a shadowy constellation of forces that we now most likely involve narco traffickers, uh, municipal police, federal police, and maybe even the Mexican military. And as a consequence of this attack, on these students who were who had expropriated the buses, uh, 43 of them were disappeared. Uh, three of them were killed in the initial attack. You also had like six bystanders who were killed in the attack. Um, there's, so there's 43 Ayotzinapa disappeared students uh, who we we don't know their whereabouts. We've they've identified the re the genetic remains of two, uh, so but 41 are still unaccounted for, um, and it unleashed. Um, a really powerful, powerful movement against the current president or the, the president then, which is Enrique, Enrique Peña Nieto, who was the new PRI, who had been on the, he had, when he won the presidency, he was on the cover of Time Magazine as the savior of Mexico. Um, he, his whole thing, he, he was going to go in and. He's a handsome guy. You know, he he's, has like a, you know, a typical nice looking family. And so Americans seized upon him. He was married to like a major telenovela star. Now they're divorced. Um, and uh, his whole narrative about saving Mexico and his, his wave of privatizations that he was trying to push through of oil, of, of um, oil and education primarily was derailed because of the popular movement that demanded answers for what had happened in Ayotzinapa. And to this day, we, you know, we've, we, we've gotten pieces of, of what happened that horrific night, but, you know, we actually last week, a parent of one of the 43 died. So he died still not knowing what happened to his son that night. In December of 2014, I went to give a book talk at UC Santa Cruz. And uh, one, of the, one of the fathers of the 43 was working in the U.S. as an undocumented migrant in the Bay Area. And I got a chance to meet him. And it was Honestly, like one of the most difficult conversations I've had in my life because the pain that he, that he tried to express to me about how he felt not knowing where his son was, right? And for me, my research was on people who had been disappeared in the 70s and, and in Guerrero, the very same state, right? So there was this weird coming together of past disappearances with disappearances in the present. And then I also have an uncle who was disappeared in 2008 by like a rival drug trafficking organization. So it, it's that issue hit at the center of what was wrong in Mexico. And it really, it really delegitimized the president. And to this day, again, we don't know what, what happened to, to these students. Um, uh, and, and, you know, the current president of Mexico has promised an investigation and, and we have yet to see the results of, of this said investigation in terms of what happened and who was responsible and whether, especially whether the military was involved, I think are, are huge questions.
so, I mean, there's so much more to do. I feel like we should do a whole episode with you, Alex, on AMLO and sort of the deep history of the Mexican left, because I think that is such a, a compelling story and says a lot about the limits and possibilities of left-wing politics. Um, but I think we've gone for a while and we've learned an extraordinary amount. Derek, do you have anything to ask or uh, add? I, I mean, I'm curious, and you can you know do this in 30 seconds if you want. Um, I'm curious... As things stand now, after, um, you know, in terms of the relationship between AMLO and the Biden administration, you know, com coming out of the Trump administration, uh, where you had, you know, if we're you know, going to talk about migration, you really had an outsourcing uh, of immigration control to a certain extent from the United States to the Mexican government. Um, what do you have any sense of? Uh, what the border is going to look like over the next couple of years and the relationship between uh, the U.S. and Mexico, you know, w what are going to be the the key issues and, and how do you expect things to, to sort of move forward? It's really tough to say. I mean, I, I would bet on continuity and really uh, the, the border between Mexico and the U.S. has been pushed farther south. So the real border between Mexico and the U.S. now is at the Mexico-Guatemala border. So last week, a video emerged of, of, of one of these migrant caravans trying to cross into Mexico, Haitian, Cuban, and Central American refugees, and they just got absolutely physically just beat up and, and assaulted by Mexican migration officials. Um, well, at the same time, the Mexican foreign minister, Marcelo Ebrard, was celebrating that they had provided refugees from Afghanistan uh, a place for, of, of safety in Mexico. So there's this, there's this contradictory legacy in Mexico of providing uh, refuge for people fleeing uh, violence and, and military dictatorships, right? They, they saved Evo Morales' life, essentially, by bringing them to Mexico, for instance. They brought, like, tens of thousands of Spanish Republican exiles in the 30s. But when it comes to Central American migrants and refugees, they're essentially operating as a colonial gendarme of, the U of U.S. migration policy. And I think I don't see anything, unfortunately, that's going to change that. I mean, because AMLO actually came to power saying that he was going to do the opposite. And if anything, he's maintained the, the remain in Mexico policy. That's illegal. It violates U.S. law. U U.S. law and international law say that people who are uh, refugees and are trying to seek asylum, this are um, they, they have the legal right to get a hearing in the U.S. And uh, obviously that was violated by Trump and the Mexican government under AMLO has gone along with it. So unfortunately, I think there's going to be more continuity with that. And, and based on the videos that I watched last week of, of these migration officials, just going ham on these on these Central American migrants um, was awful, right? And uh, it's it's probably going to to continue. Um, I don't see unless this unless Amlo has a sudden change of heart, when I'm not too 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 confident about, we're going to see again the extension of the the U.S. Basically, the, the border of the U.S. global south go farther and farther south, um, and Mexico is going to continue to play its role as this as, as doing the dirty work of the U.S. for the U.S. government. And on the U.S. side, it's, it's, a, it's a thoroughly bipartisan project, right? Like Title 42 is the, the emergency public health law that Trump and Stephen Miller invoked, right, to prevent during the time of COVID to prevent anybody from trying to come into the U.S. and claim asylum uh, through land ports. Um, and, and Biden promised to get rid of it. And, and if anything, he's extended it. And I don't he it's an indefinite. It's indefinitely placed. Right? Like it's going to continue. Um, so the bipartisan war on migrants continues. And Mexico has a really dirty role in it. 
Well, Alex, thank you so much for joining us on American Prestige. Uh, I can't wait to have you back and get into these very specific topics. And I hope our listeners appreciate this sort of run through uh, Mexican and U.S. Uh, Mexican history and U.S. Mexican relations. I think it's really critical and you can't understand the history of the United States without understanding the history of Mexico in a real way. The two histories are the same. Uh, and I think we need to approach it uh, like that as we as we teach these things. So, Alex, thank you again. Uh, really appreciate it. And uh, prestige heads or listeners to American Prestige, we'll see you all next week. Bye. Thanks, Alex. Thank you so much, guys. Bye.